The Southern Foodways Alliance believes that stories have the power to change the world for the better. We invite you to attend our Winter Symposium in Birmingham on February 24th as we learn about the transformative power of narrative. To see a full schedule of events and purchase tickets, visit southernfoodways.org. While you're there, consider making a donation. Donations support all SFA work, including this podcast. New Orleans is a sort of living history laboratory for multi-ethnic cuisine. Walk the streets, down in the city's restaurants, and you get the opportunity to apprehend the West African roots of kala, those sugar-dusted rice fritters, first conceived and cooked and sold by free women of color. A muffaletta loaded with salumi and jardinera served on a round-seated loaf is a passkey to 20th century Sicilian-American history, a taste of what dock workers likely ate as they unloaded banana boats from Central America. Speaking of Central America and of more recent history, thousands of Hondurans, Mexicans, and other Latin Americans now live and work and cook in New Orleans. Many arrived post-Katrina to help this magnificent city knit itself back together. Fortunately for us good eaters, many of those Latin American workers made a decision to stay. This week, we report from that world, a new New Orleans that hides in plain sight. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Tucked under an overpass across the river from New Orleans and Algiers, Latin American vendors cook and sell their homeland dishes every weekend. Reporter Nina Fellman recently checked out that market, La Pulga. On the way in, she met a character who set the scene in an unexpected way. That's kind of a constant in New Orleans, right? Unexpected stories? And now, a quick note before we really get started. You'll hear Spanish language throughout this episode. If you don't speak Spanish, hang in there. We want you to revel in the music of the spoken word, and we promise to interpret what you need to grasp. Yvonne came to the United States 14 years ago from Veracruz, Mexico, with two great loves, cooking and performing. Pretty soon, he found himself in New Orleans, a good place for both. Here he is singing along to the Spanish-language version of Gloria Gaynor's disco classic, I Will Survive. Yvonne says he met a handful of people in New Orleans doing drag shows who were Latino and gay like him. But there wasn't really a support group or community for those performers. And especially for the trans folks who he met, a community was really important. Many of the trans women he met were afraid of being attacked or abused. So Yvonne had an idea to get people more comfortable going out and celebrating their identity. He wanted to create a sort of beauty pageant that he called Miss Gay Latina, the first of its kind in Louisiana. It wasn't easy. Events like this cost a lot of money. But Yvonne was determined, so he booked a venue in Metairie, a suburb of New Orleans, where a lot of the Latino community lives. But Metairie has a reputation for being more conservative than New Orleans, so finding sponsors to support the event was a challenge. 
No tenía yo premios, no tenía la decoración del salón, no tenía yo el DJ. With no money, no DJ, no decorations, and two weeks until the event, the club owner helped Yvonne find contestants and a crowd and even a crown for the winner. And the event was a success. From there, a small community of gay and trans Latinos began to form and meet regularly. Yvonne says the idea of the meetings was to be like a family in a new and foreign country. They supported one another if someone was sick or if someone did get assaulted. But Yvonne knew that to support the group and the events, he needed more money. He resolved to prepare more for next year's event. Yvonne was working at a local taco chain as a line cook and was good enough that he says people around town would recognize him as the guy who makes great tacos. He had job offers from several restaurants. But that wasn't enough for Yvonne. It wasn't enough money, and it wasn't enough agency. That brings us back to Yvonne's second love, cooking. He and his partner, Gilberto, also from Mexico, had always dreamed of opening their own restaurant, a place where you could get real Mexican home cooking. The type of food your mom makes at home, Yvonne explains. Pork ribs and salsa verde. A red stew with potatoes and chayote, which is a squash that's popular in Louisiana cooking, too, known there as merleton. But when Yvonne and Gilberto started looking into it, it was just too much to open their own place. They didn't have the capital to get anything going. That's when they heard about the pulga. Just across the Mississippi River from the French Quarter in New Orleans, tucked under the overpass of the bridge that connects the two sides of the river, is a cluster of wooden stands, called the pulga, which means flea in Spanish, like flea market. You'll find a range of goods there every weekend. Some of the stands offer great deals on patterned leggings and presumably knockoff sneakers. And there's some cool junk too, old tools, radios, fishing poles. Is that a real pole or is it for a tiny child? There's even one stall built out as a barber shop. But most of all, there's food. Salvadoran pupusas and Honduran baleadas. There are tons of freshly squeezed juices and creamy smoothies. And on Sundays, a bunch of the stands make this rich coconut soup chock full of fresh seafood. Most of the vendors at the pulga are basically little restaurants. They each have custom stalls built out for their needs. Many of these vendors arrived relatively recently to New Orleans. A lot of Mexicans and Central Americans came to the city after Hurricane Katrina in 2005 to help rebuild. Yvonne, from the beginning of the story, was one of them. The Latino population in New Orleans and in neighboring Jefferson Parish has doubled since before the storm. And while mostly construction workers arrived at first, soon their families followed. 
That brought another wave of workers. This time, they were selling tacos and other treats from trucks and stands set up at construction sites. Eventually, as reconstruction work slowed down, Central American families made a home for themselves in New Orleans. And many of them keep selling at the Pulga. We had a restaurant. We had a restaurant before the storm, and we lost it in the storm. So originally, it was only going to be our restaurant here. I was going to build this big old building. This is Angela Dix. She owns Dix Jazz Market, the rarely used but official name for the Pulga. Her dad bought the property in 2007, a couple years after Hurricane Katrina. The plan was to rebuild their family restaurant in the new location. Well, we did chicken and seafood, so ours is going to be more of a Creole soul food. Angela was envisioning her family's restaurant in the middle, surrounded by individual vendors selling goods, but not food. No one else would sell food but us. As she started to build out the stalls for the other vendors, it caught the attention of some Latino folks who worked nearby. There was a few Hispanics that would come over, but I didn't think anything of it until they started to trickle in and ask me, can I get a building? And so I was like, okay. And once it, it flourished into 11 restaurants later, and so I was like, okay, I'm not doing my restaurant. It's not even my market. It meaning it's not my market of food, it's their niche. And so I just started to work with them and to help them build their business. Angela helped the vendors build out their booths based on their specific needs. And so each one of them, I just, however they wanted their building built, I took them to Home Depot and we just built the buildings. Wow, so you talked to each vendor and depending on their needs, you kind of constructed a stall specific to I did. In wow. the beginning, we were all just like, okay, we're all in this together, so I just built one at a time. Angela says that so soon after the storm, banks were very hesitant to give building loans. So she had to work with the vendors to create a fee schedule so they could finance their own construction. Jenny, who's from El Salvador, she just wanted a flat line and that was it, you know. And of course she had to build out a special stall for her barber. He used to be underneath the air condition, the cutting hair. So he had come to me and asked me would I build him a shop, and we built him a shop. Every Saturday and Sunday, Angela sits in a tiny booth in the parking lot next to the stalls she helped build, collecting $3 from every car that comes in to park. Her friend, Victorine, who's French and can speak some Spanish, helps her out. Buenos dias. ¿Cómo está, señor? Muy bien, gracias. Angela says she tries to keep the barrier to entry low. <laughs> Renting a booth can be as little as $30 a day. And since the overhead is low, the profits can be high. For a lot of vendors, the weekend market is their only job. Our model is be your own boss. And, you know, I don't consider myself anybody's boss. It's almost just like I'm a landlord. And that's just what they want, an opportunity, not just have a job, but to have their own business. Victorine, Angela's friend, is sure to point out that Angela goes above and beyond for her vendors. She knows they have to start somewhere, and they might need a little extra help, even beyond the limits of a normal business relationship. What she's not telling you is that her truck belongs to all these people. What she's not telling you is that she goes and, and fix the, help them find houses and bring the kids at school. And, and I'm not saying that because she's my friend. It's because for the last 12 years, I've witnessed her doing that every day. Buenos dias, three dollars. I witnessed her doing that all the time, all the time, finding houses, uh, 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 bringing women to the hospital. 
I just think everybody wants a chance. If you're given a chance, you can make it. I mean, if I was in a country and I needed help, I would want the help too. What I do is I put myself in other people's shoes and say, if this was me, what would I want? And if I know that I would want this help, then that's the way I try to go about helping people. In some ways, what Angela is doing is familiar. Small business incubators, especially those that support culinary businesses, are popular in cities across the country. In New Orleans' Marigny neighborhood, the St. Rock Market opened as a fancy food hall in an old public market building with stalls for neighborhood vendors. Elsewhere across the city, food trucks sell experimental acai bowls and funky grilled cheeses to gain a following and a brand for themselves before taking the plunge of opening a restaurant. You know, I always tell people, come out and see uh, if this space and area is for you. Give it a try. If it doesn't work for you, you can move on. It's unlike a brick and mortar where you have to sign, you know, a, a year lease or more. Even owning a taco truck costs more than you might think. In New Orleans, food truck operators are required to carry at least $500,000 in liability insurance. And while designed to give entrepreneurs a leg up, a bunch of these incubator models still require a lot of capital just to get started. At the St. Rock Market, for example, vendors are usually expected to have about $5,000 in the bank just to be safe. So Angela's flea market model is catching on. So much so that a new similar flea market opened up just down the road creating some competition for vendors and crowds. Since they built the, um, the market in Harvey, we took a little hit. How are you guys? Good, how are you? I'm beautiful. <laughs> Part of the reason these flea markets can offer such low rates is because of their location. The Pulgas are not in hip, up-and-coming neighborhoods in New Orleans. What are you working on? Making custom shirts for people, for businesses. Oh, nice. And uh, personal shirts. Wow. Like custom, like if you want your picture in there, I can put your picture on it. Wow. Or license plate or, or plate. See, like a dinner plate. I make those also. Oh, cool. This is Jose. He's Honduran and Jamaican and screen prints t shirts at the pool guy. this type of stuff before you came to the market? Well, I was doing it basically at home. In my home, people call me and I do it like that. You know, but now I'm here and everybody gets to know me now. You know, everybody wants their own shirt. Like this one, this guy's the welders. Wow. And so do you get a lot more business because you're here than you did when you were just sure. at home? Of course. You know, the flea market, that's where everybody comes. Poor, rich, medium, whatever. They all come here. David Barris studies food at the University of New Orleans. He says that for a place that prides itself on being a food city with influences from all over, New Orleans hasn't really included Latin American food in the mix. We, we tend to paint this picture that suggests that it's all just a really happy story, you know? The, I don't know, the, the French arrived here and they sat down with the Indians and created some food and then the Spanish showed up and 
very you can pick this up in any history book right about new orleans or any guidebook for that matter that story they kind of layer on every group you get your italians and your irish and it all is just one very happy story right and you end up with this great creole cuisine all the cuisines that Barris mentioned blended with black Southern cooking to create what many affectionately refer to as a gumbo of New Orleans cuisine. We have foods that we define as Creole that are of mixed origins. But that definition has been stagnant and doesn't represent the diversity of 21st century New Orleans. In the 1990s, I think, it, Esquire wrote an article in which they apparently said that New Orleans is a town with, you know, I don't know, 100 restaurants that all have the same five dishes. It was actually that 500 chefs were cooking the same five dishes. Crawfish etouffee, gumbo, jambalaya, you get the idea. Um, that's not true anymore, but I could see where somebody might get that idea. And so there's this notion that there's a solidified cuisine. It wasn't just Latin American food that was excluded from the idea of Creole cuisine. When I first moved here in 1997, um, I was listening to Tom Fitzmorris on the radio. Tom Fitzmorris is a New Orleans food critic. And he was explaining to people what hummus was. And I thought, you can get this in every grocery store in America. Doesn't everybody know what it is? And then as I talked to New Orleanians, I really got the impression, I mean, of course, there were also Middle Eastern restaurants here at the time, but I did get the impression that people didn't really think about that as much as they would if they were, uh, I don't know, say in Minnesota or in New York or in Los Angeles, where there isn't as much of a devotion to the local food culture. Angela Dix has that devotion to local food culture. She's a cook herself, but won't really eat any of the food at the market. I have a phobia when it comes to the kind of food that I have never eaten before, I won't eat it. You know, some people won't get on the elevator. She said, I just won't try. She went to France and eats. Eat. What you eat in France? Pizza. pizza for two pizza. weeks straight. Can you imagine? <laughs> the Gorditas have a quesadilla. Two weeks ago, I tried it. It wasn't so, that bad. Right, it wasn't that bad. Barris says that excluding Latin American food from a place's culinary identity isn't unique to New Orleans. Almost no matter where you go is Latino food and Asian food, and Latinos and Asians with that, have kind of been racialized and haven't been um, necessarily, and again, it depends on where you go, but have been kind of kept at arm's distance from what we consider to be haute cuisine or mainstream cuisine. You know, why would Chinese food be foreign food today? And yet people act as if it is. But I mean, how long have Chinese people been in America? Longer than my family, I can tell you that. Sarah Fouts, who collaborated with me on this story, studies Latin American immigration in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. She knows a lot of the taco truck owners, tamale vendors, and restaurant workers who came after the storm. I'm Nina. Sarah. Sarah. Nina? Yeah. That's us talking to Jose, the t-shirt guy. Fout says that embracing a group's food has everything to do with embracing them in general. So it's often left out of the narrative when you talk about immigration food or exclusionary policies. And these policies work to hinder integration processes. Fout says that even though many Central Americans and Mexicans came to help rebuild the city after Katrina, city policy was not super friendly towards immigrants. In 2007, Jefferson Parish banned taco trucks. And in 2013, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, ran a pilot deportation program in New Orleans. Which saw ICE agents going into places uh, like Bible studies, grocery stores, and different places where Latinos frequented. And so when you have these taco truck bans, uh, these just imminent threats of deportation, it creates this fear. It also decreases business for uh, Latino-owned restaurants. 
Because if you're afraid to leave the house, you're not as likely to go out to dinner. And if those businesses are struggling, it's a lot harder for them to become recognized as New Orleans culinary mainstays. Recently, New Orleans has adopted welcoming cities policies, and Fout says that some of this has started to change. It's better, and it definitely does see improvement. You know, you think historically about Germans, Italians, and other immigrant groups that came in in the early 20th century, you know, that, that integration didn't happen overnight. But you think about Italian food, it's the bufalata is definitely a part of New Orleans food culture. And even more recently, in the latter half of, of the 20th century, you see Vietnamese uh, communities coming into the city. Almost 50 years later, you see more integration of their foods into the menus and things like that. Fout says you can find some creolization of Mexican and Cajun food. A Mexican po'boy instead of a torta sandwich, or these fusion tacos with maybe crawfish in them. But that's still catering to these national trends of mainstream Mexican food. A lot of people who are in New Orleans are Honduran. You don't really see Honduran foods advertised or hear a discourse of Honduran populations in the same way. So the food legacy is invisible in much of the same way that the work the Hondurans did for the city is invisible. Fouts cautions that creolization isn't some kind of silver bullet for acceptance. So if Emeril was to put a baleada or pollo con tajadas on his menu, would that necessarily mean that Hondurans have been integrated into the city? No. But it does show that there's more awareness of the contributions both historically and contemporarily, of this Honduran community in the city. And I think that's a step. For now, these flea markets are still on the fringes of the city and still cater to a mostly Latino clientele. After the break, we'll visit the newer Pulga and catch up with Yvonne. Coming up after the break, short lesson in food service economics, but first, there's that donor music. Lodge Cast Iron, a family-owned business in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, has been making cast iron cookware since 1896. Lodge Cast Iron Camp Dutch Ovens are the first choice for campers preparing meals over a fire. Their skillets and griddles are perfect for searing steaks and roasting vegetables at home. And professional chefs from Atlanta to Los Angeles stock their kitchens with Lodge seasoned steel skillets and griddles. No matter what or where you cook, Lodge makes pots, pans, even griddles, just for you. For over 100 years of meals and memories, and for Lodge Cast Iron's support of this podcast, we say thanks. Antojitos Garibaldi, authentic Mexican home cooking in the 10th stall of the third row of the West Bank flea market. And it's operated by none other than Yvonne and his partner, Gilberto. Yvonne says the recipes at the restaurant are half his and half Gilberto's. They named the place after the Plaza Garibaldi in Mexico City, where the mariachi bands play. He says they try to bring a taste of what fellow Mexicans living in the States miss from home. Pork and black beans and rice, like your mom would make. Yvonne and Gilberto tried to get a stall at Angela's flea market, 
but there wasn't space, and they liked this one even better. It feels less like a market you'd find in Latin America and more like a lot full of storage units where each garage or stall houses a different restaurant or store. The whole thing is new, freshly paved, and very clean. Yvonne gets off work from the taco chain on Friday nights around 1 in the morning and goes home to help Huberto, who's finishing the preparations for the market the next day. He goes to bed around 3.30 or 4, really just for a nap, and wakes up around 5 to go shopping for whatever they're missing. He gets to the market around 8 and starts setting up tables and filling water jugs so they're ready for people to show up as early as 9. Yvonne and Gilberto have had to keep their other jobs during the week because, like any small business owner will tell you, profit margins are tight at first. Yvonne says that since they're just starting, they can't just work however they want. But he says the extra money has been super helpful for the group he leads with the LGBT Latinos in New Orleans. Nosotros no recibimos fondos económicos de ninguna organización, de ninguna persona. Yvonne says they don't receive any funding for their support group. All the money comes out of their own pockets, so any extra cash helps. He says when they got started back in 2013, they were just working with one other person. Now their group is more than 40. We'd like to give them more, Yvonne says, but we give them what we can. It hasn't been easy, he says, it's cost them. But this flea market model has made it possible for Yvonne to fund his pageants and his support group. Plus, he says he gets to live his dream of running his own restaurant. Yvonne makes it seem possible to live more than one dream at a time. Nina Feldman, who works for WHYY in Philadelphia, produced this episode. She worked with Sarah Fouts, a postdoctoral fellow at Lehigh University, who conducted a series of interviews for SFA at La Pulga. You can find those oral histories on our website, southernfoodways.org. As ever, Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick, and our donor music is by Jazar. Our managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milam, and our intern is Robin Miniter. Find photos, a full list of episode music, and resources for further reading at our website, again, at southernfoodways.org. While you're there, please consider a donation. Your gifts make gravy and all other SFA media possible. One more thing as you go about your day, please make cornbread, not war.